Hello there and welcome to this Paro seminar where we're going to look at the uh, peterson Shizak debate that's happening in Toronto. Uh, what I'm doing is we're going to do this over two. Uh, this is just going to be a very short introduction. Uh, if you're watching this live, then you're probably going to be watching the the Shizak peterson debate that's going to be happening in a few hours time in Toronto uh, through the live stream. Uh, so I'll just do kind of a basic introduction to the two thinkers, where they agree, where they disagree. And then tomorrow night, I'm going to do a more extensive uh, seminar where I'll just basically do a bit of a commentary on what happened. And uh, I'm very excited about this. I said in the description that this is probably the, the most talked about or most controversial kind of academic uh, talk since uh, Chomsky sat down with Foucault in the 1970s. Now, there's a little bit of hyperbole there, but in another sense, it is very hard to think of another time where there's been so much interest in an academic talk. Uh, Peterson is more of a, a popularist, um, you know, which is, I'm not saying that in a bad way, I'm a popularist. Uh, Shizek is a popularist, but he's also a philosopher. Um, but you know, people are buying tickets for a thousand dollars a pop. Uh, they're they're downloading it like this is a, a Conor McGregor fight. <laughs> so there'll be tens of thousands of people. Uh, I'd be fascinated to know the figures actually. But people who will be watching this on the live stream as well as being there in person. In fact, uh, they even well, Peterson wanted to bring this on the road and wanted to do this in dozens of cities, uh, but Shizek wasn't keen. Uh, Shizek wanted to do this once for a very particular reason, which I might talk about in a second, because um, he, he mentioned it in a recent podcast uh, where he talked about what he wants to get out of this debate. So um, anyway, it is a massive thing. Uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens. Um, I'm nervous. Uh, this is what it feels like for people who are into football or who are into wrestling or boxing or anything like that. I've never been into those things, so I don't know what it feels like. But this, I get it now because I'm excited and nervous and I'm interested in what's going to happen. It could be a massive disappointment, could be absolutely fantastic. Uh, who knows? Uh, so we're having drinks here. We're going to be uh, eating together. And as I say, at, at 12.30 at night, the, the kickoff will happen. So uh, I'm not going to explain who they are. You probably already know a little bit about them. You can look up Wikipedia. I'm also really bad at all of the autobiographical stuff or the biographical stuff. Uh, that's an interesting Freudian slip. I'm also very bad at autobiographical stuff. I don't remember very much about my own life. It kind of bores me. So uh, other people's personal idiosyncratic things also bore me. Uh, but I can tell you the basics. Jordan Peterson's Canadian. He's a clinical psychologist and he has a Jungian bent. So he, like, let's say three things about him. One is he's trained as a clinical psychologist, not as a psychoanalyst, clinical psychologist. So he has an interest in the scientific study of the subject. And so a lot of his work, he is referencing uh, contemporary research that's being done, that's trying to find uh, 
what like basically what science does is it finds regularities it finds connections it finds causality uh, you know you you're studying hundreds thousands tens of thousands of people to try to find <clears throat> uh, insightful data so he's in that frame that's quite different by the way from a psychoanalytic approach which is uh, very singular the idea is that everybody's a type of universe and so uh, although you can uh, chart various things that people have in common um, psychoanalysis is very interested in the idiosyncratic the uh, the particular uh, the thing that makes you who you are in all your weirdness and you are very weird I've gone through your trash right so uh, Peterson clinical psychologist uh, he's also conservative I would say now I don't mean that in a pejorative way <clears throat> um, Peterson doesn't use the term but when I say conservative I just mean that he tends towards wanting to conserve or return to something in the past and particularly you'll notice in a lot of his lectures say on religion he is thinking that Western civilization is under threat of being destabilized by various forces uh, cultural Marxism being the main one that this is an external threat that is threatening to undermine various Western institutions that I think most of us would agree are even if they're not perfect not bad you know the the justice system education system health system etc etc so even when you listen to him talk about religion a lot of it is saying that we need to return to these stories we need to return to these myths uh, because they teach us something that we have lost uh, in fact this is one of the differences he has with some of the other people who are called the intellectual dark web because and this is quite uh, this is interesting i mean for a while um there was a move on the right that was mostly new atheist and uh, what Peterson has brought in is something interesting there because he's within that frame, uh, very closely connected with people like Sam Harris, uh, Dennett and Hitchens and, and Dawkins. You, you, could, you could put Peterson in broadly that field, but with a big difference, which is he really wants to uh, reconnect with religious mythology. In fact, he has taught more probably on the Bible uh, than anything else <clears throat> I mean there's a whole I listen to them all and there must be 30 hours of uh, lectures that he has online that are a close reading of the the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures so it's very very important for him to return to something that we have lost and ultimately it's a return to the collective unconscious for, for Peterson so that's the second thing there's a conservative dimension to him which is a desire to conserve certain institutions uh, a desire to conserve certain religious mythologies and stories and to return to them to let them restore balance to a threatened imbalance that is occurring today and then thirdly and very connected to that is Peterson has a very Jungian uh, approach uh, to his thinking uh, so in terms of the primary thinker and I've listened to a lot of Peterson and he's he uh, mentions a variety of thinkers 
And some of the thinkers he mentions, I've got to be honest, even though he says he's very influenced by them, um, I think that he's quite different from them. But the one who I think he is closest to and that he understands best uh, and that he works with a lot is Carl Jung. Now, that's not to say that all Jungians are sympathetic to Peterson. I've, I've talked to some Jungians who aren't sympathetic, but uh, in my reflection and reading um, Jung and listening to Peterson, I would say that actually he has a very strong connection with the Jungian understanding of the unconscious and of the subject. And that influences his notion of politics, uh, his desire for a more conservative worldview, um, his, his fear of a destabilization of the West, his talk about uh, yin and yang or masculine, feminine, order and chaos, light and shadow that need to be brought together in a type of harmony. Um, so there you go. There's there's three elements just in terms of Peterson. One, he's, a, he's trained as a clinical psychologist, so scientific uh, psychology. Uh, he has a conservative uh, bent, which is a desire to conserve religious stories, religious mythologies, to connect us with the collective unconscious um, and to uh, protect us from a threatened destabilization from things like cultural Marxism or feminism or uh, various identity politics positions. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, he is very Jungian in his approach. And when I mention Jung, I mean primarily Jung's notion of the unconscious. So for Jung, the unconscious is, it's, it's almost a subconscious, not an unconscious. And there's, a, there's an important difference there. A subconscious is the idea that there is something beneath our consciousness, that we push things down. And for Jung, uh, the, the unconscious is beneath the conscious. And it is it really is there to try to restabilize the individual. So if, for example, right, a very basic example, um, you know, as a kid, if you're thirsty, you might dream of drinking water, right? So what's happening in your body is you are uh, very, very thirsty. You're really wanting to part to quench that thirst. And so the dream is an attempt to bring homeostasis back into your life. Uh, or if you need to go to the toilet, you'll dream about going to the toilet, right? Again, you, you're dying to go to the toilet. And so the, the dream uh, kind of, in a sense, tries to answer that desire in some way. And in uh, adulthood, perhaps as an example, you really despise someone, you really look down on someone. But then maybe you're unconscious, you will dream of them in some sort of important way. They will have an important role in your dream. And it's almost like an attempt to get a better uh, perspective of that person. You're not thinking of them highly enough. And so the unconscious comes in with the opposite in order to bring balance and harmony. So um, there's, a, I think it's the volume seven of Jung's Collected Works. There's, a number, there's two essays that are the deal with Jung's notion of the unconscious and they're very influential in uh, Peterson's work. So that's Peterson. <clears throat> um, Shizek uh, is a first rate philosopher, a continental philosopher, uh, who uh, has a number of influences. His three main influences 
or Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, and I think that's his main influence. Now he said that himself that as he gets older again, like Hegel is the kind of the the rock upon which he is smashed, right? And upon which everyone's smashed. Like he is the high point of the philosophical tradition uh, for Shizek. Um, and you know, there's a, there's some truth to that. I think Hegel is that high point of philosophy. Um, and uh, it's hard to do philosophy without taking Hegel seriously. So he's a Hegelian. He's also a Lacanian. So the other great thinker that is influencing Shizek's work is Lacan. And to a lesser extent, he's also uh, a Marxist. He's into Marx. Um, and the three of those figures, Marx, Lacan and Hegel, are in conversation with each other. So much so that Shizek is creating something that is, in a sense, uh, an innovation. Because, uh, and Shizek talks about this, but innovation happens in philosophy often through not not just being faithful to a thinker. So you're faithful to Hegel, you read him very carefully, you think it through, but then crashing him against somebody else and then reading him through that lens and misreading him. And basically, Shizek has taken these three thinkers, there's a variety of other thinkers that are deeply important to him, but those three thinkers are kind of brought into conversation in a way in which they illuminate aspects of each other that might otherwise go unnoticed. And, you know, Shizek has written a phenomenal amount of books. I mean, over 50 books, it could be over 100. You know, it's like so many. He's prolific. Uh, although he gets the critique that often he's writing the same book because uh, he repeats stories and analogies. What you'll notice if you're a careful reader of Shizek is, yes, he'll use the same stories, but he will often shine a different light on them. And actually, that's very important for Shizak. He says, like, instead of jumping around from one analogy to another, he prefers to get one that's really meaty, just like a painting. You get a painting that is really beautiful. You don't just look at it once and then go on to another painting. You put that painting in your house, if you can, or a print of it, and you go back to it again and again, and you look at it in different ways, and it speaks to you in different ways. And for Shizek, that's why he uses a lot of the same analogies because he finds that the ones he picks are very rich and he'll look at them in various ways. But he has written probably half a dozen or more books that you could say are seminal works um, in various areas. He's, he's made significant contributions in philosophy, uh, particularly in his work on Hegel. He's uh, made significant contributions in the area of political uh, philosophy, uh, particularly with his work on ideology and desire. And he's made significant uh, contributions to the world of theology, uh, using Lacan uh, to revitalize radical theology. Uh, and I, I need to talk to some psychoanalysts, but I think he may have also made significant contributions to psychoanalytic theory. But uh, uh, if not, he is definitely one of the leading expounders of uh, Lacan's thinking in a philosophical way. And so that's Shizek. And these are two giants in different ways. They are people who command a huge audience. They have a huge amount of influence. But there's another reason why this debate's interesting. It's because there are a number of areas 
where they uh, meet. Right? There's three subjects, three areas that they're both interested in, but in very different ways. So I'm just going to mention what they are. The first is that they are interested in Christianity. Right? They are both deeply interested in the religion in general and Christianity in particular. Uh, secondly, they are both um, interested in the unconscious, very interested in the unconscious, and they are both very interested in critiquing progressive politics. Right? So those are the three areas where they kind of combine. They are very interested in Christianity, they are very uh, interested in the unconscious, and they're very, they very critical of progressive politics, liberal politics, and uh, neoliberalism. So I'll just take each one of those in turn. Um, Christianity. Okay, both of them have spent a significant amount of time on theology. One of Shizek's most famous books, uh, perhaps perhaps his best, is the, uh, the Sublime Object of Ideology. And in the Sublime Object of Ideology, he is already doing theological work. There's you know, theology isn't mentioned explicitly very much, but there are a number of places in that book where you start to see his interest in Christianity, particularly through the lens of Hegel. Uh, but he then, later on in his career, writes a number of books that are specifically around Christianity. They are, I should have looked at this in advance, but they're On Belief, which is a very short book. Supposedly he wrote it in a week. And it's, it's a messy book, but full of really interesting insights. So On Belief. There's uh, The Puppet and the Dwarf, which is a brilliant reading of Paul. And there is, uh, so let's see, Unbelief, The Puppet and the Dwarf, and I forget the third book that he did on, like this very specifically theological, it'll come back to me. But in, in addition to those three, the third that I forget, is also The Monstrosity of Christ, which is a book that is half written by John Milbank and half written by Slavoj Žižek. So there is this period where he was writing about that consistently and speaking about it consistently. Now, the difference between the two of them is that, uh, uh, oh, The Fragile Absolute. There you go. The third is The Fragile Absolute, another fantastic book. Um, the difference is uh, Peterson has a Jungian approach to Christianity. So what he sees is he sees the, the Bible as... Uh, an ancient text, wisdom text, that has rules for life, that, that tells us how we can live uh, in continuity with the universe, that we can find a harmony and balance within ourselves. We can reconnect with, with all of humanity through the, the wisdom of these stories. So he reads the Bible. I mean, you could say this is maybe... Uh, sounds pejorative, but, but kind of as a self-help manual. Now, that doesn't mean that he thinks it's only a self-help manual. Um, you know, I, I don't think he does. Actually, although he doesn't talk about it very much, like he's not doing apologetics. He's not arguing for the existence of God. Uh, you won't hear till, uh, uh, Peterson you know, uh, talk about the five ways of Aquinas or argue for the existence of God through the ontological argument or anything like that. If anything... It seems that, and I'm just, uh, through what I've listened, it seems like Peterson is saying that his argument for the existence of God, if he has one, 
is more connected to the idea that this narrative is so profound and so deep and so in tune with reality itself that it seems like something that is transcendent. So his, his argument is more of an argument like, um, who, who else makes that type of argument? Um, I have to think about that, but it is, it is a type of argument that says, you know, the, the, Bible, the Bible has such great insight into what it is to be uh, when we mine it that, um, that it couldn't be anything else. Actually, in Islam, this is one of the arguments for the Quran. If you ever talk to some, someone who's on the street, uh, who's Muslim, who's talking to people about their religion, uh, you'll find that they'll sometimes read some of the Quran to, and the argument is, this is so beautiful and it's so beautifully constructed and it was written by someone who wasn't educated that that, that is kind of evidence of its trans transcendent source. But that's not important to Peterson. What's important to Peterson is he feels that as a society, we need to reconnect with these ancient stories in order to uh, create defenses against the destabilizing force of an external enemy that is threatening to basically uh, uh, bring chaos at the expense of order. Um, as an aside, by the way, <clears throat> people often say that Peterson's all about tidy your room. I think that's one of his pieces of advice, tidy your room. But Peterson himself has said, because when I heard that, I was like, that's a bit weird. Because if you're an obsessive, that's the last thing you should do. Because obsessives are so tidy <laughs> that uh, their houses are like uh, graveyards. It's like the apple aesthetic, right? So for an obsessive saying tidy your room doesn't do anything. You're going to be like, no, you have to tolerate a bit of messiness. Right? But I think you know, Peterson would, would agree with that. Uh, he just thinks that um, chaos is reigning. And so we have to go to the other extreme. But he's wanting to find this balance. And a Jungian reading of the Bible is it gives self-help. It's about how to live. It's about how to find a balance with yourself, with society, with your neighbor, um, with, with the uh, ground of being. Uh, in contrast, uh, Shizek is saying something very different. Shizek is a more existential reading of the text, uh, much more Kierkegaardian. Uh, Shizek is arguing that the Bible is not a self-help book. In fact, it's the opposite. It's madness. From the, from the point of view of wisdom and self-help, the Bible is crazy. Like Abraham and Isaac, uh, the story of God dying and all the various stories. Job, you know, uh, he, like Kierkegaard would say, like the one thing you shouldn't say about Jesus was he was moral or he was ethical. Because in a sense, when you read the biblical text, it critiques our notions of, of wisdom and it critiques our notions of morality. Uh, Christ is a stumbling block to those who want to treat it as wisdom and uh, it was a, a stumbling block to those who want to treat it as a, uh, a type of self-help and a uh, foolishness to those who want to treat it as a, as a wisdom tradition, right? It's, it's, it doesn't fit in that way. And instead, Shizek is trying to argue that Christianity brings us into confrontation with antagonism and with lack, with the absurd. So it's much more in the tradition of, say, Kierkegaard or Camus and others. Um, and so it's much more Freudian and Lacanian. Uh, Shizek is kind of saying that, that's why he makes such a big deal of uh, 
Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is this experience of the rupture of God. He's saying that Christianity is drawing us into some sort of place where we have to do business with the lack and with the antagonism, turn it into something good, but we, we can't get harmony and balance. There is an imbalance that we have to harness uh, in a positive way. Um, is there anything else I could say about that? I mean, there's so much in this. I'm not, I don't want to defend or attack either position. I'm just kind of outlining them. Uh, for Peterson, the Bible is more of a connect with the collective unconscious, connect with this wisdom tradition, this ethical tradition that, that brings harmony and stability into our lives. For Shizek, Christianity is drawing us into an ability to confront the antagonisms of life, doubt, complexity, ambiguity. Um, and to find a way to mobilize that. Um, to say it in a very, very philosophical way, for Peterson, God fills the ontological, the lack that is in life. God kind of is, brings harmony and fullness and plentitude. Uh, but for Shizek, God is the name we give to the lack. God is the ontological lack. God is a name we give to a type of... Uh, revelation of rupture in reality so you, you've got two very different ways of approaching christianity but both of them vie for it uh, both of them are calling themselves christians both of them use that term both of them are happy to use that term in a world where a lot of people would be embarrassed to use the term theologian or the term christian both of them are laying claim to that and that's really interesting but they have very different readings of that the second thing I mentioned was the unconscious. Both of them are interested in that dimension. However, again, they go in very different ways. Uh, for Peterson, the unconscious is something that brings balance to consciousness. There is this kind of like, uh, we're like a seesaw or like uh, one of those, I always forget the name of them, but I've got one that's one of those devices that always tries to find balance. You can. You can set it off to one side and it, it will find equilibrium again. And they're a kaleidoscope. Oh, no, that's not a kaleidoscope. I don't know. They've got them in planes, spacecrafts, all of that. Um, can't believe I can't remember the name. I had one as a kid. You put a piece of string around it. You pull a piece of string and it just spins, right? So the unconscious is like, there's the conscious and the unconscious. There is chaos and there is order. There is light and there is darkness. There is masculine and there is feminine. And these need to be in conversation with each other. And the less we are in connection with our unconscious, uh, the, the more skewed we are. So for example, if we're very rational and we, we, don't, uh, we don't access our emotional life, that will cause all sorts of problems. Or if we're incredibly emotional and we don't think rationally hardly at all, again, that's very damaging. And what you have is your unconscious will be attempting to bring back the dimension that you are neglecting. But if you, if you don't make peace with that part of yourself, it will come back in an aggressive way. Uh, and then, um, oh yeah, but then for for uh, for Shizek, sorry, there's just uh, at least someone's upstairs and they're creaking. I hope you can't hear it. Um, for Shizek, uh, 
the unconscious he's freudian the unconscious doesn't exist it's not like there's the conscious and there's the unconscious all there is is consciousness and then the rupture the uh consciousness is not at one with itself and it's the not at oneness with itself that is the unconscious so um an example i've used before but simply in northern ireland there's a city that is called Derry and londonderry uh it's got two names and depending on what name you call it it tells you about what your political uh, position is it tells you a little bit about how you see the world uh, how you see uh, catholics or protestants and there's no way to objectively name the city you either call it Derry, and then you're, you're within a nationalist community or you call it londonderry and you're within a loyalist community and that's kind of similar to the human subject uh, basically um, if you think about it like there is a there is a, a journalist who uh, tried to solve this problem and he started calling the city Stroke City because journalists would say uh, Derry Stroke Londonderry and so this guy started saying Stroke City and he named the gap between Derry and Londonderry but there isn't two cities there's just one city but that's not at one with itself one city that different people see in different ways and that's kind of like consciousness it's like it's there's the conscious and the unconscious but the unconscious is the stroke it is the slash that means it's not at one with itself and that's very important because what that means is that there is no balance so within a Jungian position we are trying to find balance within the Freudian position there is just an inherent imbalance to reality and in in biology that's called evolution so an antagonism within physical uh, species that causes all of this you know different things that we see today that are alive today in science it's um in physics it's superpositioning in mathematics it's a uh, you know undecidability or under uncertainty principle of Gödel. um it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways but basically the Freudian notion is we shouldn't try to find some sort of balance. That's actually the problem. We always are seeking balance. We're always seeking a way to get rid of the lack, to get rid of the antagonisms of life. We always are tempted to fantasize some object that will fulfill us, make us whole and complete. Uh, but within the Freudian kind of view of the unconscious, it's like, no, you have to make peace with that antagonism. You need to harness it and utilize it in a positive way. So that's where they differ in the terms of the unconscious. And then the third area that I mentioned is in their critique of progressive politics. Um, we're thinking primarily of student politics within the US. Um, and again, they have very different reasons for being critical. And this brings us to the debate, because my guess is this is what they'll be talking about tonight, right? Um, basically, for Peterson, the uh, increasing issues in terms of deplatforming of speakers and, and the less civility in politics, more hysteria, all of the stuff that we're, we're seeing uh, within kind of student bodies uh, is a problem. For Peterson, that is an external problem that has entered into the American Academy, basically from the continent, uh, primarily from like the Frankfurt School. 
where Marxism, and this is in Peterson's reading, Marxism uh, became a uncredible position uh, in the aftermath of Stalin. And so a variety of thinkers uh, who were Marxist and who didn't want to give up Marxism, they then started to apply Marx to the cultural realm, to the reading of literature, to uh, institutions, to movies. And this is what is called within, uh, for someone like Peterson, it's called cultural Marxism. And then this position basically took the notion of the proletariat as being oppressed by the bourgeoisie to the idea that there is oppressors and oppressed and it's happening everywhere in literature and movies and all sorts of ways and that notion has infiltrated the US and is threatening to destabilize um, the, you know the good systems that are in place and he'd be the first to admit they're not perfect but he thinks that this is this is a great threat um, on that, by the way, that's not really what Marx... Marxism is not something that postulates an oppressive person, an oppressor. Uh, that existed well before Marxism. Um, there's lots of... All th through the history of uh, human uh, development, there have been oppressors and the oppressed. Uh, Marxism is primarily a critique of a certain form of economics, capitalism. But that's beside the point. But for, for Peterson... Uh, the progressive politics that we see, identity politics, is a external problem that threatens to destabilize the West. Whereas um, for Shizek, it is a symptom. And the difference between a problem and a symptom is basically that a problem is something external that threatens to destabilize, whereas a symptom is the concrete manifestation of a destabilized reality that already exists. So to use an example, a friend of mine, he was a clinical psychologist, was working with a child who was wetting the bed. And the parents brought the child in and said, this is a problem, right? This, this bed wetting is becoming an issue. And it was threatening to destabilize the family unit. But as this person began to talk to the child, they realized that uh, the bedwetting was not an external problem that was threatening to destabilize the family unit. It was the concrete manifestation of a destabilized, disavowed um, problem that was already existing within the family. In other words, the bedwetting was a type of truth. It was speaking something that was not being spoken of. And so for Shizek, this is not some sort of conspiracy, some sort of external force that is, that, is, that is being imposed within America. Rather, it is the concrete manifestation of real political problems, of real oppression, of real issues that need to be addressed. And so what Shizek will be doing in this debate primarily is he will be using it as a way of saying, if you agree with Peterson, that there are a variety of problems in terms of the civility of political discourse, um, the uh, uh, loss of a universalist political uh, vision, etc., etc., then you don't have to see it as a problem that is threatening to destabilize capitalism. Uh, he's going to say you can see it as a symptom that describes a catastrophe that is already within capitalism. The catastrophe isn't coming. It's already here, 
right? The end of the world isn't in the future. We are living in the end times. And we are just ignoring the catastrophe, like being on the Titanic as it sinks, but drinking champagne. Um, and that is where this debate is going to be interesting. Who is going to be more convincing? Uh, is Shizek going to be able to draw people uh, towards a non-identity politics left position? Uh, or will he be unconvincing? And will Peterson be able to maintain um, the, the critique of ID politics, which he has, which has kind of made him famous? So there you go. That is the debate in a nutshell um i'm that's my guess if i was putting money on this i'd say uh there that's that's where it's going to be uh fought out um as far as i know each of them will just be speaking for 30 minutes they're not going to have an actual debate uh they're going to speak for 30 minutes separately i think a 10 minute response time and then q a from the audience so with that, I'm going to uh, leave you to it. Hopefully you'll watch the live stream and then uh, tune in for the second part of the seminar where I'll, I'll offer a commentary on it. Thank you.